Sections seven and eight of How to Sing. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. How to Sing by Lily Lehman. Translated by Richard Aldrich. Section seven. Nasal. Nasal singing. Singing toward the nose. Covering the tone. Chanter dans le masque. Nasal twang. By raising the back of the tongue toward the soft palate, and lowering the soft palate toward the tongue, we produce a nasal sound, such as is heard in the pronunciation of the word hanger, for instance. The air is then chiefly expelled through the nose, as the fore part of the mouth is cut off from the throat by y. The nasal sound can be exaggerated, something that very rarely happens. It can be much neglected, something that very often happens. Certain it is that it is not nearly enough availed of. The Germans have only small opportunity to make the acquaintance of the nasal sound. They know it in only a few words, Engel, Lunger, Mangel, etc. Always where NG occurs before or after a vowel. The French, on the contrary, always sing and speak nasally, with the pillar of the fauces raised high, and the back of the tongue high against it, and not seldom exaggerate it. On account of the spreading of the palate, which through the power of habit is cultivated especially by the French to an extraordinary degree, and which affords the breath an enormous space as a resonating surface to act upon, their voices often sound tremendous. Such voices have only the one drawback, of easily becoming monotonous. At first the power of the organ astonishes us. The next time we are disappointed. The tone colour remains always the same. The tone often even degenerates into a hollow quality. On the other hand, Voices that are not sufficiently nasal sound colourless, clear, and expressionless. There are singers, too, who pursue the middle path with consummate art. Meshat, for example. To fix the pupil's attention on the nasal tone and the elasticity of the palate, he should often be given exercises with French words. Singing nasal, or toward the nose, not to be confounded with nasal twang, which is produced by a high larynx and by pinching the tongue on A, cannot be enough studied and utilised. On account of its tonal effect, its noble timbre, it should be amply employed on all kinds of voices. By it is effected the connection of tones with each other, from the lowest chest to the highest head voice. All the beauty of the cantilena lies in the conscious application of it. This is all that singers mean when they speak of nasal singing, really only singing toward the nose. Palate and back of tongue laid one toward the other create a covering for the tone which is called covering the tone. In French, chanter dans le masque. How little the teachers speak of it is shown by the fact that many singers are quite ignorant of what nasal singing means. 
and when by chance they hear something about it, they are tormented by the idea of singing toward the nose. They generally regard the voice as one complete organ acting by itself, one thing always the same. Of what can be made of it through knowledge of the functions of all the cooperating organs, they know nothing. Reader's Note Here an illustration shows these series of notes. Bass Baritone Tenor Alto, soprano, etc. End of reader's note. In these ranges, the tone is usually covered by good artists. Yet tone covering should gradually begin in the preceding tones, so that these do not suddenly sound like another register. Covering a tone draws in the assistance of the vowel oo in ascending tones. Understand me well, it draws in this assistance to other vowels as well, not to oo alone. It makes the larynx more pliable, and therefore makes the ascending into a higher range easier, as it directs the resonance into other forms. In male voices, tone covering is more striking than in female voices. Yet all kinds of voices demand its utilization if the singer wishes to lay claim to perfection and noble timbre. Blind voices are caused by the exaggerated practice of the nasal singing, which the singers concerned do not sufficiently diminish in the head voice, drawing the pillars of the fauces too far toward the wall of the throat, and so closing off the passage toward the head cavities. Many singers persist in the bad habit here described as long as nature can endure it. In the course of time, however, even with the most powerful physiques, they will begin to sing noticeably flat. In the case of the less powerful, the fatal tremolo will make its appearance, which results in the ruin of so many singers. How often have I heard young singers say, I no longer have the power to respond to the demands made upon me, whereas the trouble lies only in the insufficient use of the resonance of the head cavities. It should never be forgotten that as the posture of the voice changes, the position of the organs cannot remain the same. End of section 7 Section 8 The Head Voice the head tone signifies, for all voices, from the deepest bass to the highest soprano, leaving out of question the fact that it furnishes the overtones for each single tone of the whole vocal gamut, youth. A voice without vibrancy is an old voice. The magic of youth, freshness, is given by the overtones that sound with every tone. Height, youth, freshness of the voice equals A and E. So to utilize the head voice, resonance of the head cavities, that every tone shall be able to carry, and shall remain high enough to reach higher tones easily, is a difficult art, without which, however, the singer cannot reckon upon the durability of his voice.
often employed unconsciously, it is lost through heedlessness, mistaken method, or ignorance, and it can hardly ever be regained, or, if at all, only through the greatest sacrifice of time, trouble, and patience. The pure head-voice, the third register, is, on account of the thinness that it has by nature, the neglected stepchild of almost all singers, male and female. Its step-parents, in the worst significance of the word, are most singing-teachers, male and female. It is produced by the complete lowering of the pillars of the fauces, while the softest point of the palate, behind the nose, is thrown up very high, seemingly almost into the head, in the highest position, still higher, thinking E above the head. The back of the tongue stands high, but is formed into a furrow, in order that the mass of the tongue may not be in the way, either in the throat or in the mouth. In the very highest falsetto and head tones, the furrow is pretty well filled out, and then no more breath at all reaches the palatal and chest resonance. In the sensation of it, the larynx stands high and supple under the tongue. Mine leans over to one side. See plates of larynx. All organs are elastic. Nothing must be cramped or exaggerated. The vocal cords, which we cannot feel, now approach very near each other. The pupil should not read about them until he has learned to hear correctly. I do not intend to write a physiological work, but simply to attempt to make clear certain infallible vocal sensations of the singer, point out ways to cure evils, and show how to gain a correct understanding of that which we lack. Up to a certain pitch, with tenors as well as with sopranos, the head tones should be mixed with chest resonance. With tenors this will be a matter of course, though with them the chest tones are much abused. With sopranos, however, a judicious mixture may be recommended, because more expression is required since the influence of Wagner has become paramount in interpreting the meaning of a composition, especially of the words, than in the brilliant fireworks of former times. The head voice, too, must not be regarded as a definite register of its own. If it is suddenly heard alone, I mean disconnected with chest or palatal resonance, after forcing the preceding tones of the higher middle range, it is, of course, noticeably thin, and stands out to its disadvantage like any sharply defined register from the middle tones. In the formation of the voice no register should exist or be created. The voice must be made even throughout its entire range. I do not mean by this that I should sing neither with chest tones nor with head tones. On the contrary, the practised artist should have at his command all manner of different means of expression, that he may be able to use his single tones, according to the expression required, with widely diverse qualities of resonance. 
This, too, must be cared for in his studies. But these studies, because they must fit each individual case, according to the genius or talent of the individual, can be imparted and directed only by a good teacher. The head voice, when its value is properly appreciated, is the most valuable possession of all singers, male and female. It should not be treated as a Cinderella or as a last resort, as is often done too late and so without results, because too much time is needed to regain it when once lost, but should be cherished and cultivated as a guardian angel and guide like no other. Without its aid, all voices lack brilliancy and carrying power. They are like a head without a brain. Only by constantly summoning it to the aid of all other registers is the singer able to keep his voice fresh and youthful. Only by a careful application of it do we gain that power of endurance which enables us to meet the most fatiguing demands. By it alone can we effect a complete equalization of the whole compass of all voices and extend that compass. This is the great secret of those singers who keep their voices young till they reach an advanced age. Without it, all voices of which great exertions are demanded infallibly meet disaster. Therefore, the motto must be always practice, and again practice, to keep one's power uninjured. Practice brings freshness to the voice, strengthens the muscles, and is, for the singer, far more interesting than any musical composition. If in my explanations I frequently repeat myself, it is done not unintentionally, but deliberately, because of the difficulty of the subject, as well as of the superficiality and negligence of so many singers, who after once hastily glancing through such a treatise, if they consider it worth their while at all to inform themselves on the subject, think they have done enough with it. One must read continually, study constantly by oneself, to gain even a faint idea of the difficulty of the art of singing, of managing the voice, and even of one's own organs and mistakes, which are one's second self. The phenomenon of the voice is an elaborate complication of manifold functions which are united in an extremely limited space to produce a single tone. Functions which can only be heard, scarcely felt, indeed should be felt as little as possible. Thus, in spite of ourselves, we can only come back again to the point from which we started, as in an eddy repeating the explanations of the single functions and relating them to each other. Since in singing we sense none of the various activities of the cartilage, muscles, ligaments and tendons that belong to the vocal apparatus, feel them only in their cooperation, and can judge of the correctness of their workings only through the ear, it would be absurd to think of them while singing. We are compelled, in spite of scientific knowledge, to direct our attention while practising to the sensations of the voice, which are the only ones we can become aware of. 
sensations which are confined to the very palpable functions of the organs of breathing, the position of the larynx, of the tongue, and of the palate, and finally to the sensation of the resonance of the head cavities. The perfect tone results from the combined operations of all these functions, the sensations of which I undertake to explain, and the control of which the ear alone can undertake. This is the reason why it is so important to learn to hear oneself, and to sing in such a way that one can do so at all times. Even in the greatest stress of emotion, the power of self-control must never be lost. You must never allow yourself to sing in a slovenly, that is, in a heedless way, or to exceed your powers, or even to reach their extreme limit. That would be synonymous with roughness, which should be excluded from every art, especially in the art of song. The listener must gain a pleasing impression from every tone, every expression of the singer and the feeling that much more may be given, if desired. Strength must not be confounded with roughness, and the two must not go hand in hand together. Phenomenal beings may perhaps be permitted to go beyond the strength of others, but to the others this must remain forbidden. It cannot become a regular practice, and is best limited to the single phenomenon. We should otherwise soon reach the point of crudest realism, from which at best we are not far removed. Roughness will never attain artistic justification, not even in the case of the greatest individual singers, because it is an offence. The public should witness from interpretative art only what is good and noble on which to form its taste. There should be nothing crude or commonplace put before it, which it might consider itself justified in taking as an example. Of the breath sensation I have already spoken at length. I must add that it is often very desirable in singing to breathe through the nose with the mouth closed, although when this is done the raising of the palate becomes less certain as it happens somewhat later than when the breath is taken with the mouth open. It has, however, this advantage, that neither cold air nor dust is drawn into the larynx and air passages. I take pleasure in doing it very often. At all events, the singer should often avail himself of it. We feel the larynx when the epiglottis springs up, and when we pronounce A by which we can judge whether the epiglottis springs up quickly enough, and if the breath strikes the hard palate, which gives the tone its strength. The low position of the larynx can easily be secured by pronouncing the vowel OO, the high by pronouncing the vowels A and E. Often merely thinking of one or the other is enough to put the larynx, tongue, and palate in the right relation to each other. Whenever I sing in a high vocal range, I can plainly feel the larynx rise and take a diagonal position by means of the tongue, which, though only signifies a closer union of the organs one with the other, and a higher position of the back of the tongue, 
as well as lowering or softening of the entire larynx. The movement is, of course, very slight, yet I have the feeling in my throat as if everything in it were stretching lengthwise. End of section 8